The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. So that last meditation was from John McCransky, Lama John McCransky. I'm going to talk about him a little bit today. And um, I've also brought along my friends behind me, as I always do, who give me support and help to remind me and perhaps you that this isn't, isn't me up here speaking the truth. I am, I am sitting on the shoulders of other greats. And so I brought along um, Martin Luther King Jr. and Thich Nhat Hanh in the picture there on the left. As you might know, Martin Luther King Jr. nominated Thich Nhat Hanh for the Nobel Peace Prize. Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. And this man is uh, so, named David Buckle. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe not. I'm going to talk about him, too. So I like to bring people that inspire me and support me in this endeavor. Ah. <laughs> uh. So I have to share something funny. I was walking along yesterday. I was on the McAllister campus, and I looked down, and there was this sticker. It says, I'm a Buddha. (laughs) I thought, wow, that's a message. So I'm going to wear it. (laughs) I wish I had one for all of you, because we're all Buddhas. We all have what we need inside of us. We just sometimes lose track of it. I don't know where this came from, but there's actually there's something at the bottom that says, I think I need to get some more. <laughs> um, so I thought I would talk today or offer some reflections on, I'm calling this independence or interdependence. And um, when I was pondering what I might speak about, I was thinking, well, this is the perfect opportunity, right? This is July 4th weekend. So I'm going to offer some reflections uh, in honor of that holiday. And I write them out because I have an old brain, and I want to remember what I want to say, and also because I'm going to bring in the words of some of my um, guides. I want to make sure I, uh, I accurately reflect what they're saying. So these are my words, and I um, would appreciate hearing from you. I think there'll be time at the end. Any sort of reactions, comments, um, anything that you would like to add to the topic or anything else, really. So we'll make time for that at the end. Can you still hear me all right? Okay. So I'm old enough. I'll be 72 in September. Uh, and naive enough to have spent most of my life really blissfully enjoying July 4th and all the hoopla around it. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's part of, just part of the picture. I loved and, and still love the fact that a lot of people get a paid holiday. I meant to look up the labor laws. I'm sure there are all sorts of ways that people get around that. But at least people who have I think everyone who has a full-time job or works a certain number of hours because it's a federal holiday, that they get a paid day off. may not be July 4th, but they get it sometime. Or they get time and a half. I I asked everybody that I encountered on July 4th if they got time and a half. (laughs) And actually, everybody, yeah, 
Yeah, that's Aya saying yes. You got it. Okay. At least the people I, I saw at Walgreens and places like that, they told me they got time and a half. Okay, so I like that. And I also like the fact that it's a holiday that falls in the middle of the summer, and it's warm, and there are not too many bugs, hopefully. And so it's got all that summer stuff going on. And I like the fireworks, although usually I can't stay up late enough to see them. Um, and, and I like them because I like to hear the reactions of the other people, like, ooh, ah. You know, everybody is just so excited about something that's quite simple and beautiful. And it's very communal. I just love that. Um, but there are also things, as I'm sure you're aware, that are more complicated and dark about this holiday. And until recently, I didn't really have to think about that much. Um, And um, I didn't think about it. I didn't think about the fact that July 4th is celebrating the liberation of white men from the government of other white men. And it did not mean independence for the Africans, whom these white men enslaved, or the indigenous people whose land they stole, or women of any ethnicity or color. So this is a quote uh, from an article by someone named Mark Charles. He's a, he's a Native American on something called Native News Online. And I think it pretty sum, it sums it up. This is the dilemma that Native, quote-unquote, Americans face every day. The foundations of the United States of America are blatantly unjust. This land was stolen. Native peoples, Africans, and many other minority communities have long been recipients of systemic racism. And the roots of it are right here for the entire world to see, printed in many of our founding documents, like the Declaration of Independence, which calls Native Americans savages, if you haven't read it, the Constitution, and the United States Supreme Court rulings. We announce it, we flaunt it, we celebrate it. As a nation, we embrace this history because we are largely ignorant of the true nature of our past and have never been held accountable for our actions. As Americans, we celebrate our foundations of discovery and cling to our narrative of exceptionalism because we have been taught that this nation was founded by God on a principle of freedom for all. But the reality is that the United States of America exists because this land was colonized by Europeans who used a doctrine of discovery to dehumanize, steal from, enslave, and even commit cultural genocide against indigenous peoples from both the New World and Africa. The author ends the article by saying, you can still light your fireworks and eat your barbecue as you celebrate a hard-fought victory over the British, but at the end of the day, I humbly ask you to conclude your celebrations with the following prayer. May God have mercy on the United States of America and give us the courage necessary to create a common memory. May God have mercy on the United States of America and give us the courage necessary to create a common memory. So this common memory includes not only the truth of enslavement and cultural genocide against indigenous peoples and the peoples from Africa, but also the memory of the Japanese internment camps, the decision to deny safe harbor to 900 Jews arriving on a refugee ship from Europe in 1939, the ongoing murder and mass incarceration of innocent black and brown men 
and the imprisonment and death of immigrant children and their parents arriving at our southern border right now. And you might be thinking, why did I come to this talk? (laughs) So this last memory will be the legacy of the current administration. And there are similar legacies from earlier administrations, of course. The refugee ship carrying Jews trying to escape Hitler after Kristallnacht was turned away by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a Democrat. This is the story as told by the historian Aaron Blakemore. How many people know about this ship? Raise your hand if you know about it. Okay. So this is a little bit of the story of that ship. An attempt to land in Miami was rejected by immigration authorities, so they had spent 29 days crossing the ocean. The passengers would have to abide by existing quota system that allowed only about 27,000 people from Germany and Austria into the United States. A State Department official telegraphed the passengers, telling them that they, quote, must await their turns on the waiting list and qualify for and obtain immigration visas before they may be admissible into the United States. Does this sound familiar? Though Roosevelt had considered a concerted push to rescue Jewish refugees the year before the St. Louis sailed, he eventually dropped the idea, both because he knew it would be politically unpopular and because of his increasing focus on the looming world war, end quote. The ship was turned away and returned to Europe. Almost half of the passengers subsequently died either in concentration camps or elsewhere during the war. These are not, of course, the only story or the entire story of the United States of America, but they are the most, or some of the most, important stories for those who are still fighting for freedom. Freedom not from an outside government, but from those inside who have forgotten the truth of our shared humanity. So one of my favorite yoga teachers is somebody named Sarah Joy Marsh. She teaches in Portland, Oregon. and She said it this way on July 4th. Perhaps a pursuit worthy of more commitment than independence is freedom. Freedom from suffering. Freedom from the limiting ideas we have about ourselves and each other. Freedom from the conditioning in us that perpetuates harm and separateness. Freedom from our guardedness and the inevitable distancing in us from the divine. A distance which causes inner restlessness and which we may try to fill with busyness, possessions, distractions, substances, opinions, and so on. Regardless of how you understand the divine, calling it God or Buddha nature or pure awareness or Gaia or whatever else, I think this kind of freedom is the reason why many of us practice, perhaps why many of us are here today. We are tired of the limiting ideas, the isolation, the suffering that comes from pursuing independence rather than freedom, from choosing independence over interdependence. We are tired of being disconnected from our own true nature and from others. So I'd like to tell you a story about someone who devoted his life to this kind of freedom, and this is David Buckle, whose photograph is back here. Does anyone know that name? 
So Mr. Buckle understood interdependence. He understood interdependence, the interdependence of humans and other species. He understood the interdependence of this planet and the beings that live on it. He understood the interdependence of all human beings, regardless of sexual orientation, race, religion, and all the other ways we divide ourselves up. So when he was young, he was an attorney for Lambda Legal. So, the, uh, and he, in that role, he was one of the lead architects of the Marriage Equality Act. So he was very active on that scene. And then he retired from the law, and he devoted himself to environmental work. And he built a composting site in Brooklyn called the Red Hook Community Farm Compost Project. Because he believed that composting sites were a great way of bringing people together from the community in a sustainable way. So the project that he built was run entirely on renewable resources, solar, wind, and volunteer labor. And it's the largest operation of its kind in the United States. It has more than 2,000 volunteers. And they help to compost 150 plus tons of organic matter every year, which they, which they trans, transfer, not transfer, which they trans, what's the word I'm looking for? They, they take from waste to rich soil amendment. And many of the men who were in that community, some of who were paid staff, they were people who perhaps didn't have fathers in their lives, who were suffering from poverty, who were suffering from oppression. Many of them looked up to Mr. Buckle as a father figure. He had quite a following. So early on the morning of April 18th, 2018, Mr. Buckle called in sick to work. He walked to an isolated section of Prospect Park with a jug of gasoline, and he set himself on fire. And though he told no one, including his husband, about his intentions, he had carefully planned his death. In his suicide note, he wrote, quote, Most humans on the planet now breathe air made unhealthy by fossil fuels, and many die early deaths as a result. My early death by fossil fuel reflects what we are doing to ourselves, end quote. Mr. Buckle hoped that his death would lead to expanded action on pollution. The method of his death was influenced by the Tibetan monks who had burned themselves to bring attention to the suffering of the Tibetan people at the hands of the Chinese. In trying to understand his suicide, the author of an article published a month later in the New York Times connected the timing of his death to a recent ruling that rolled back emission standards that left him feeling helpless. The article reported that after he died, many people seemed to dismiss Mr. Buckle's death because of the nature of his suicide, and they focused only on his mental health. The article of the, the author of the article concludes it by saying, As I once heard Joan Didion say at a reading, the personal and the political cannot be separated, but are entwined in a double helix. That was particularly true for Mr. Buckle. He was not, it was not for me to say where his politics ended and his personal pain began, but his story is one that will stay with me. So I tell you this story not to shock you or depress you, 
or to pretend that I know anything that was going on through his mind. But I tell it to honor his memory. He came to me one night when I was thinking about what I wanted to speak about, and I wanted to honor his commitment to interdependence. (coughs) And I also want to suggest that perhaps Mr. Buckle's death is just one part of his story. It is for sure just one part of his story, one part of his self, a self that only despaired of positive change, but not only despaired of positive change, but also offered so much love and compassion and hope to others. So one of the core teachings of the Buddha, as I'm sure you're aware, is the empty nature of what we call the self. It's not that we don't have a personality and views and ways of behaving in the world, but these are changing and impermanent, like all conditioned phenomena. When we develop the ability to watch this changing self, which we do through practices like meditation, when we're mindful of all of its manifestations, we begin to understand how it leads to clinging and to suffering, our own and others. This is me, my, and mine. My planet, my country, my people, my whatever. And anything that threatens that is to be rejected and feared. Those Jews on the boat and those immigrants on the border are going to make things scarce for me. I need to deny my common humanity and goodness and separate myself from others. So this is human nature. We all do this in one form or another. Unless we're a Buddha or a Bodhisattva, there are times when the conditions are going to be right and a part of ourself will react with hatred, greed, or delusion, or all of the flavors of those. These are the teachings, and in my experience this is true. I'm no different from anyone else. And it's exactly at those times when both compassion and wisdom are important. Wisdom to understand how it is that this sense of self is born and the consequences of that. This is the teaching on dependent origination. And compassion for the suffering that it perpetuates. So recently I had the good fortune of being on a retreat with Lama John McCransky. Does anybody know Lama John? Yes. Okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> so Lama John, as he's called, he's, uh, he's Jewish. He's an American Lama in the Tibetan tradition. And he teaches Buddhism at Boston College, which is a Catholic school. <laughs> so there you have it. This is America, right? And, um, and so he can speak the language of all of those traditions, and he actually brings them in. And a lot of his work is focused on um, making some of the Tibetan Dzogchen practices, if you know what they are, nature of mind practices, more accessible to Westerners and to people of all faith traditions. So he teaches in a way that kind of strips off some of the language that's more culturally based, and he offers the practices in a way that many people can access them. And he has a a foundation called the Foundation for Active Compassion. And that foundation is involved in social and environmental justice work. And he wants those people, the people that work in those areas, 
to be able to connect to an unconditional power of love that's already in them, in their own minds, so that they have something that they can then work from as they offer their selves and their practices and their work to people in need. And his hope is that these practices will be both healing and sustaining for their work. And when I was on retreat with him, I couldn't help but wish that Mr. Buckle had heard him teach. So Lama John has recently begun incorporating some of Richard Schwartz's internal family systems into his work. Anybody know about internal family systems? Okay, so it's a model for working with the self. Uh, It's a psychotherapeutic model, but a lot of other people use it. And so I'm not an expert in it. I used to be a therapist, but um, that wasn't my modality. Um, so I'm going to just say a few words about it, which I hope are accurate. It's the what I what I understood from Lama John. So um, basically, internal family systems posits that everyone has many many relatively discrete parts of the self. One person at the retreat said they had, they had actually identified 32 parts in one day. So each of us have these parts that show up. So I have a part that comes up right now. It's like, I hope you're not putting these people to sleep or offending them or whatever. So these parts show up under certain conditions. And each each of these parts has valuable qualities and they have roles that they play within the self-system. So often these roles are protective, right? This this part of me that says, I hope you're not boring them or or offending them, that's that's a protective part. Like, okay, don't go don't go too far out there on a limb because it won't feel very good. So we have these parts. Probably you have protectors. Does everybody here have a protector part? Yeah. And we have manager parts, so we have lots of parts. And some of these parts can become quite extreme if the outside circumstances really need them or require them or we think we need them to take over. So people who are um, who have experiences of abuse or live with oppression... Sometimes there are certain parts of them that are very prominent that play these protective roles. And when that happens, sometimes other parts of the system can become destabilized. Or we don't don't even know they're there. This other part is so prominent. So instead of thinking of the self as kind of this coherent whole that needs to be managed or overcome, which is sometimes what I think, um, Lama John suggests that we learn to recognize these parts and that we acknowledge their roles and we hold them all with compassion. So I don't know if you remember the meditation that I led, but there was a part of it where it talked about noticing if there are parts that are coming up in response to recalling a benefactor. And it's his idea and it's, it's my experience that if we meet those parts with love instead of hostility or repression or like go away, that they will eventually feel safe enough to relax and to release their grip on the mind. And then only then can we hold them in this spacious awareness that we all have without having to identify with them or be overwhelmed by them. So perhaps this was part of Mr. Buckle's challenge. I don't know. Perhaps there were parts of him that were so identified with needing to 
make really dramatic positive changes as it relates to climate change and who is feeling quite helpless in response to what's been going on. Perhaps that part overwhelmed those other parts of him that were so helpful and beautiful and compassionate. I really don't know. But based on my own experience with working the parts with the parts of me that are despairing and feel kind of helpless sometimes, I'm guessing that might have been at least part of his experience. So perhaps if we were able to hold those parts of ourselves that are afraid and vulnerable with compassion, we could relax into our own true nature. So the the Tibetans call this spacious mind or spacious awareness, the empty mind, the cognizant mind, the compassionate mind, they refer to that as our true nature, the nature of mind. Perhaps we wouldn't have to fight for independence from anything or anyone, but would have the courage necessary to create this common memory mentioned by the native author at the beginning of the talk, a memory that includes all beings, a memory that acknowledges our interdependence. So I'd like to I'd like to end with a passage from uh, a book by Minger Rinpoche. Does anybody know Minger Rinpoche? He was just in the Twin Cities. So he's a uh, he's a he's a Rinpoche. So he's a teacher, high teacher, in the Tibetan tradition. He's what's called an incarnate. Lama, so he's actually considered to be the in reincarnation or the incarnation of somebody named Minger, who lived several hundred years ago. And by his own account, he was raised as a Dharma prince. So he had a very privileged life. And I saw him eight or nine years ago. I did a month-long retreat when he was in Minnesota with him. And in fact, he looked like a Dharma prince to me. He always had somebody carrying an umbrella over him. You know, he, his skin was so white, well, actually not white, but it was unwrinkled. Um, he, you know, his hands, he has such unusual hands, beautiful hands, nails perfectly manicured. He always had this retinue of people going around from place to place. When he walked into the room, everybody stood up. You know, he was truly a Dharma prince. In fact, he had never done his own laundry, cooked his own meal, bought a bus ticket, none of this, by the time he was in his late 30s. And his teacher, Nyoshal Kempo Rinpoche, had gone, had been in a similar situation and had gone on an eight-year um, retreat on the streets in India. And uh, he was so inspired by that that he decided he would do that. So he um, he... He runs a lot of monasteries in Nepal and India, and he didn't want to tell anybody that he was going. So he planned this all out, and when he was, I think he was about 39, 38, he left a note in his room, and he snuck out in the middle of the night, kind of like the Buddha sneaking out from his palace. It's actually a very similar story, because this guy was a Dharma prince. The Buddha was supposedly a prince, although some some say he wasn't. Um, He snuck out. And he rigged up the lock on the gate so he could get out. And he called a taxi. He'd never been in a taxi. He'd never paid for a taxi. And he took this taxi to a train station. And he went to Varanasi in India. And he, he subsequently spent four and a half years living on the streets. 
with nothing. He took no, well, he had $150 with him. That got him in the cab and the train. But after that, he had no money. So he lived on the street for four and a half years. And when he came back, he was changed. I saw him not shortly after he came back. So I, you probably can't see this picture on this book, but this is a picture of him when he came back. And he's very scraggly, and he has this long beard, and his face has got some wrinkles in it, and like he is different. And so um, he wrote this book called In Love with the World, which he wanted to call Dying in Every Moment, but the publishers wouldn't let him. So it's about his very, very honest description of what it was like to, to see all these parts of himself that he had never really had to deal with because he had been taken care of. And so I just want to read one paragraph from here. That So he had had panic attacks from early in his life. And he thought he had kind of gotten them under control. But all it took was one night sitting on the train station in India with no, you know, no food. Nobody cared that he was a monk. And he was like freaked out. So um, this is his description of how he worked with this. I came to understand that if I allowed the panic to remain and stayed within the recognition of awareness, I would see that panic is just the display of my mind, or you could say a part of my mind. In this way, panic would self-liberate, meaning that panic, as well as our thoughts, emotions, and perceptions, is already free in and of itself. Liberation comes with a change in perception. Our problems do not need to be liberated by some outside force. I saw that liberation would not, would never come by focusing on the panic or on any problem and trying to get rid of it. So one could say by focusing on any part of the self and trying to get rid of it. We let it be and then the next cloud will roll in and out and calm waves will come and turbulent waves will come. Life's problems would never end, and people that I loved would not live forever, and I would encounter new fears and anxieties. But if I stayed with the recognition of an awareness, I would be okay. I would be able to deal with the clouds and the waves, ride them, play with them, get knocked over, but not submerged. I would not get trapped. I finally discovered the only reliable liberation from suffering, not trying to get rid of the problem or the part of the self. Then the wave stopped trying to get rid of me. It was there, but it was not damaging. The critical insight came from contemplations on impermanence. My thoughts did not last. This body is changing. This breath is changing. My panic is changing. The life I wish to pull, to pull in will change. All that we experience is like waves on the surface of the ocean, rising up and dissolving. Slowly, instead of relating to panic as an immovable block of iron, I was able to locate a larger, impersonal view of perceptual movement. Clouds, plants, airplanes, people, coming and going, arising and disappearing, belly expanding and contracting. So I highly recommend this book if you have any interest. It's like a, it's a real page turner. I mean, it's just amazing. What he, he almost died, actually. And it's a description of that experience. So that's my, those are my reflections. If I have offended you in any way, I may have. I, I, uh, I don't want to say I ask your forgiveness. That puts a burden on you. 
but I, I, my sincere apologies if I've done that, and I would like to hear about it. And anything else that you want to say in response to what I've said. So we have about 15 minutes if anyone would like to respond or offer their comments or their experiences. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. David. Thank you so much. Um, Great reflections for this holiday weekend. And especially the um, the list of the freedom from. I can't remember all of them, but you know they kind of clumped under freedom from oppression of one kind or another. And I'd just like to add that there's also freedom too. And I think that's what Buckle was up to. Freedom to work on the Marriage Equality Act, to work on the environment, to participate in things that actually help liberate other people. And so it's great, great I think, to have that balance in, uh, between the freedom from and the freedom to. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm working on freedom to, like I'm sure a lot of people in this room, not in those grand fashions, but, you know, in small ways. And, uh, and so just once again, thank you so much for your, for your talk. And thank you for bringing that, highlighting that. Thank you. It's very important. Thank you. I'll steal a moment. What was the um, t- the article you read in the beginning about the Fourth of July? Oh, um, where's that from? Native News Online. What is it? Native that? News no, Online. Okay. okay. Yeah, you'll if you go to that site, you'll see it. Okay. Good. Yeah. Thanks. And the name of the last book that you mentioned, if you would, please. In Love with the World. Thank you. Also known as Dying in Every Moment. (laughs) First, uh, thank you very much, Jane, for the teaching. Um, uh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> sure thing. Yep. Um, so I find it's super important to speak about so many of the challenging and conflicted history, history, uh, points that you brought up, uh, earlier on and throughout the talk. I think there's, uh, the willingness to self-indict in that way is a necessary step in the path of freedom and liberation. So thank you. At times during these conversations, I, in like feedback moments, talking with friends, I find that it's easy for people to get stuck or mired in shame, right? When the weight of what we as a country have done and under the weight of what uh, white privilege has done under the weight of American privilege. <clears throat> and that stuckness uh, oftentimes keeps people from acting. 
Like I'm just so mired in my own guilt, shame, and stuckness that I, I don't know what to do, what the next step is. What, what tips, pointers, suggestions, teachings can you offer to help people move through that stuckness so they can take these words not as, uh, uh, not as a tool to further beat down uh, a fragile sense of self, but as inspiration to move forward in the path? Um, so having been mired in that guilt and shame for quite a while, um, I, I, I don't consider myself an, an expert. I'm a work in progress. Um, so I remember in the community Dharma leaders training, um, so that was four years of what was hell for me. It was the first time I was ever uh, in the minority. It was predominantly people of color. And I spent most of the first at least couple of years feeling so much guilt and shame that I couldn't speak. And, and then somebody stood up and said, you white people have to stop feeling so guilty. It's not helping us. I thought, God, she's right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so that was incredibly helpful. Like, I, I somehow got permission. You know, so that was my own experience. That was the beginning of like, okay, this really isn't helping anything. Um, and it's not to say I don't still fall into that. Um, so I think one is naming it, right? And then discerning whether or not that's actually helpful to what we, we, I want to move forward. And I haven't found ways that it's helpful because as you said, it stops us in our tracks. Yeah. It stops me in my tracks. And so, again, it's a work in progress. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, part of the answer is, for me, is just to continue to learn and learn and learn and learn and learn. And and it's not personal. I mean, the the teachings are, this is, I did not ask to be born white and privileged, okay? And I am, and that come with that comes a responsibility. And part of that responsibility is to learn as much as I possibly can about what I haven't seen. And then to be in dialogue with other privileged white people and about what we do about that and how we see that and how we see it showing up every day, every moment of our lives. And, and with people who are not so privileged. And I don't know what else to do. So it's a, it's a, to be in a state of constant learning is my, is my path. Yeah. Just mine. I'd be curious to hear what other people say. And what's your responses to that, if you have one? Yeah. Um, thank you. <laughs> I'm also very interested in hearing what other people have to say. Something you said in your talk, actually, uh, and I didn't—I forgot about it until you just responded again, had me think of uh, something in this regard. Um, and so I don't, I'm, I'm just trying this on right now. But what if we considered racism, sexism, bigotry, um, the natural consequences of living in a racist, sexist, bigoted society, and not as personal moral failures. Like, what if we treated this as, as we treat everything else in the Dharma, and and, and work to accept the part of ourself that is bigoted, sexist, racist, and 
and not pushed it away and created more aggression towards ourselves as a result of it. I think the fear that comes up for people in thinking that is like, oh, I'll just be racist and bigoted and, and sexist for the rest of my life. But I find like, just like with everything else in the Dharma, as we allow ourselves to accept what is, then it naturally shifts, changes, and evolves into what it could become, its highest expression of itself. But it starts with a deep sense of acceptance without judgment. And I think that's a, a challenge for, for all of us. Yes. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I mean, one of, one of my practices is every, every time. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. Every night I come home and I say to my partner, I can't believe what went through my head today. I mean, so we just, like, talk about it. It's like, and it went through my head. That doesn't, as you said, that doesn't mean that's all of me. Uh, that's a part of me that is conditioned and will show up under certain circumstances. And to meet that, as you said, without aggression, but also not to ignore it. Yeah. Thank you. Just in, in passing, I would like to say that there was a talk on NPR on Friday, I believe it was from the Aspen Festival, and you might look it up. I personally didn't understand it. You know, so I, I didn't stick with it very long, but it was some man talking about racism, racist, racist society, racist background, and how that all interacted. It was when, he, when we talked there, it, was, it sounded very much like the same words, so you might go and look on on that. But I just want to give a shout-out for shame. <laughs> and Femi, you've said that to me before in the past, and it bugs me, and I'll tell you why. The thing that whiteness does best, we keep moving. We fix it. We solve your problem. We can fix you. I can colonize you. I could take this. I got 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 this. This white person here needs to shut up, sit down, and sit in the truth of the history that I am socialized to not ever come in touch with. The people who it's harmed, the land that I'm on. And Sherry, you said a few words today. There is a, a universe of suffering behind those words. And I lived my life not ever having to really be in touch with that. And I cannot move through that. I should not move through that. Yes, people want me to like, don't get stuck in shame and guilt and take action. I've seen my action. Woe is me. Woe is. It's not right action. It's not right view. It's coming out of just don't be shameful. Get something done. March, do something. Really? But where's the root for that? It's all, it's just a blanket on my shame. So I just want to, we can talk later. <laughs> but what I would encourage, like you, you, you asked Sherry her response. My response is sit down and, and feel, I was on my bike the other day. I dropped my ba my kid off at preschool. We rode our bikes. I live by Lake Nokomis, which means grandmother in Ojibwe. And I'm riding my bike and I'm like, oh my God, it's a beautiful day. The, the birds are like sweeping past my bike. It's like, it's a commercial for like Minneapolis is beautiful, right? <laughs> and it just would drifted in was like, wow, this is beautiful. I'm so blessed. I'm riding my bike. I don't have to be at work. I don't have a minimum wage job. This land is stolen. This land is stolen. This land is stolen. I keep riding my bike and I felt through it, through the light, 
to the other side, and I'm grateful that I'm here now, that my babies are safe, that I have this community, and I feel through it. That's what I would offer, right? That, you know, you've heard the story about the two wolves and, like, which one do you feed, the angry wolf and the happy Have you ever met a a hungry-ass wolf? He will eat your face. That part of me that is angry or ignored or rejected, they don't need to be not fed. They need to be nurtured and compassion and love. And that part of me, that white part of me, the whiteness part of me, that is scared to look, to own, to, to be responsible for the first time ever, she needs a lot of love to be sat with, to just keep riding with her. Because if I don't do that, what I've seen is it lashes out in this weird shit that I do around people of color, racist stuff that comes up. That I'm like, where'd that come from? Oh, I know. I haven't been taking care of her. Mm. And it just hurts more people. So I'm going to shout out for shame. If anybody wants to, you know, it's, it's not something to get stuck in, but like, it means I need some attention. I need to take care of that. I need to heal that part. And if I learn anything from a handful of people of color who care enough about me is that they've said, heal yourself. Be free. And I'm like, what? I got to fix this stuff out here? No. <laughs> what time we got? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, nah. We'll, we'll definitely finish this over some lunch. Your treat. Reparations, huh? We'll pay it one way. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, Touche and uh, well said. Yeah. I think you are exactly right in speaking directly to the need to unflinchingly address the historic and contemporary manifestations of these internal ills of our society, racism, sexism, bigotry. And there's a fearlessness with which you do that. I know you personally, and I, with which you do that in your own life and in your work professionally. And I think that we all can take... Uh, take lesson from that one of the things that i like to separate out in this conversation is the difference between shame and guilt guilt Guilt. where guilt a very appropriate response to the actions and behaviors that are unbecoming in some way something that i've done where i'm able to take responsibility to and respond in a a beautiful and skillful way versus shame uh a wholesale judgment on me as a human being and reinforcing my unworthiness. Well, I feel guilt for, you know, all the crazy things you white people have done is important. (laughs) 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 I think shame only, only creates stuckness and, you know, like, you know, the Buddha's teaching on the two arrows, like, you know, so the first arrow, something happens, that's a problem. That's the racism. That's femi, that's my sexism. I was born in a sexist society, so I was taught that men are better than women. Like, that's my sexism. 
The second arrow that compounds the problem is all the judgment, all the shame that I put on top of myself for in many ways, what is the is the unfortunate yet natural ripening of the karmic actions that have been sown before my time and through my own actions like the the, the, sh- the second arrow is the shame that I put on myself for responding in this way. And I think that that second arrow is actually a, you know, Gene talked earlier about like the protector. It's a way of protecting me from really feeling deeply into the chaos of my own nonsense in my heart. And so, right, I think. Uh, I think you see this in, in white culture. I think you also see this in like, you know, heteronormative male dominated cultures where we're not allowed to sit and be with our own issues internally. And we have to keep responding and acting out and acting and fix this, fix this, fix this without time to really sit and be with it. So I advocate 110% sitting and being with the ways that we have quote fallen short, the ways that we're just not living into the Dharma as fully as we can. And I say, do that with great vigilance to ensure that that necessary and healing work of assessing my own guilt doesn't tip over into the stuck work of uh, in the in exercising the privilege of being stuck in shame, right? It's a privilege that we sit here stuck in shame and unable to act when when children are dying on the border, right? It's a privilege for us to sit and talk about these things. And I don't know what to do. I don't know how to respond. I don't know how to respond when there are people trying. When there are women being beaten in this country by 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 their loved ones by men because because we don't know how to respond. Last thing I'll say is I think once we're clearer with how we, uh, our own self contribute to the suffering of the world, like when we dedicate the merit, we talk about the work we've done here in this last hour, how that helps to alleviate the suffering of the world. That's what we do in the same way when we, through greed, anger, and delusion, contribute to the suffering of the world. That's how we are, we are affecting what's going on on the border or in other parts of the world. So I think this work right here is the internal start with ourselves. Most radical thing we can do to save anybody in any part of the world is what we're doing right now. So I think the next Dharma talk should be Femi, and I don't know your name in the back. We should have like a dialogue. Um, I feel uh, so grateful. <laughs> so, so grateful. So grateful we can have this discussion. So grateful for this center. So grateful for the practice. What am I doing holding this up? <laughs> um, and, I, and you mentioned dedicating the merit. So I would like to dedicate the merit, which is a practice that we do, to acknowledge that our intentions, our good intentions, our practice, that we do this not only for our own benefit. We do this for the benefit of the world. We do this to help to alleviate the suffering of the world. Perhaps we want to do it in honor of Oscar and his young toddler daughter, Valeria, who died at the border, Mm. and all of those others in similar situations or in other systems of oppression, dedicating our practice, our discussion, our reflection, dedicating that to alleviate the suffering of all beings everywhere. May all beings be free. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, 
www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.